1: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
2: Good evening here from the general uh, New York City area. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth Reality in 21st Century Archaeology. Um, very often we have discussed the uh, implications of of the legal system and uh, cultural resource preservation insofar as they relate to major archaeological sites, tourist sites, uh cultural heritage features that have extended beyond the pure research domain and gone into the public realm, if you will, and they have gotten classified by in North America certainly but as the uh by the National Register for Historic Places and they assume a certain type of significance that makes them very, very unique or very individually important. And in occasional situations, there are controversies in the preservation and the maintenance and even the funding of archaeological excavations and preservation efforts in support of retaining these magnificent sites that provide unique insights into our heritage. Um, controversies occur. Uh, very often they get resolved, very often they don't get resolved. Uh, in most cases, actually, as we have discussed on several programs, um, controversies can be bridged. It uh, requires a certain cooperative spirit on the be- part of the developers or the people who are actually creating a structure in the footprint of the archaeological site. And as well, the preservation community has a certain amount and a tremendous amount in some cases to say about whether or not the, the site should be retained, whether or not it should be removed in the interests of of satisfying the developer's uh, licensing and the needs of a particular community. These are subtle, uh, complicated issues very often, but uh, when they come to the fore, they are dealt with in a variety of different ways, and I am happy to say that in most cases – they tend to get resolved. One of the questions that had been posed to many of us, and especially over the course of the program, is the classic one, does archaeology actually impede development or put it forever to rest? And the answer in 99% of those cases, probably more, is no. But satisfactory methods have to be implemented to make sure that development concerns are balanced against preservation concerns. And, And I'm happy to say that in today's show we're going to look at a very interesting site that um, was identified in the heart of Miami, and my guest today uh, is Dr. Christopher Dorr, who served as an expert witness in this particular controversy that pitted basically the city of Miami versus the developer and a variety of preservation interests. We're going to go into the actual dynamics and the points that are associated with this controversy. But uh, first of all, let me introduce my guest, Chris Dore, who is a registered professional archaeologist, has both a doctoral degree in anthropology and a master's degree in business administration. His career experience includes holding executive positions in leading cultural resource and environmental consulting companies. Uh, Chris has served as the president of the American Cultural Resources Association and has also been the treasurer. Of the Society for American Archaeology. Um, He is currently the editor of a series called Advances in Archaeological Practices and he is a consulting archaeologist expert witness as we will discuss in this particular issue and he is an adjunct professor in anthropology at the University of Arizona. Chris, welcome to the program.
3: Good afternoon. Thank you, Joe.
2: Chris, tell us a little bit about the famous uh, Miami Circle controversy and a little bit about its background and how the situation came to the foreground.
3: Well, the initial uh, Miami Circle, um, I think, came to light about 15 years ago, and that was on the south side of the, the Miami River, uh, where it empties out into to Biscayne Bay and right in the heart of downtown Miami. The, the current kind of case is what I tend to call the new Miami Circle site or the, the Tequesta site, as most people call it. And it is uh, right across the, the river from um, the original Miami Circle site on the, the north side of the Miami River. And interestingly, this lot, although it was in the heart of downtown Miami, uh, was a parking lot since a grand historic hotel at that location, uh, was damaged during an earthquake and subsequently uh, uh, torn down in about in the late 1920s or uh, around 1930. And so the lot has sat vacant or become a parking lot since that time. Uh, in 1998, a developer called MDM Development uh, uh, requested a permit to develop this block. It's an entire square block and uh, three other blocks um, adjacent in, into a... Uh, Uh, kind of a multi-use and entertainment development as part of a larger package. Uh, Then archaeological work started, as it typically does, on these type of projects in uh, 2002. And in 2004, the archaeologist uh, who was doing the work, it was Robert Carr, uh, started finding in the bedrock uh, underneath, essentially, at the base of the archaeological site, started finding post holes. And subsequently, there's been about 2,500 postholes roughly found in this block, and some of which form circles, and there are some other shapes that were, that were formed. Uh, and the developer was going through the, the city's compliance process, and even though this had been going on for a decade or, or more, actually, uh, it really started getting visibility um, with the public in Miami and even beyond Miami, uh, late last year. And the, there was a hearing that took place on Valentine's Day, on February 14th of this year, where the developer was presenting his kind of post-archaeological mitigation plan to the city of Miami uh, and to the, uh, their Heritage, Heritage and Environmental Preservation Board. Back
2: up a second for me, mm -hmm. Chris. Just a second. So you're saying that it started; they started exploration in 2002. Were excavations ongoing between 2002 and now? They were going
3: for, I believe, a while during the early 2000s, and then there was a hiatus, and then
2: they started up again, I think, over the last couple of years. And in the course of that time, it was full-on excavation for the entire city block, or how how did the excavation go?
3: That's correct, um, essentially, yeah. The entire city block was excavated. Um, you know, we never get that in archaeology, actually, no. where we had 100% excavation of an entire city block down to bedrock, and then even the bedrock was documented uh, because of these post-impressions that were found using uh, what we call LIDAR or laser scanning to, to produce a high-resolution 3D image of the, uh, of the bedrock layer itself.
2: Now, were there archaeological remains within the soft sediment above the red bedrock
3: there were indeed, and not only the the focus on this has been on the prehistoric component of this this site mm-hmm. and
2: i 'm sorry, go ahead no i I was just going to ask you uh, what was the sequence say from the parking lot going down, obviously you would have what we what we call fill. Uh, to a certain depth, and then all of a sudden you get into clearly historic material and then into the prehistoric. So why don't you just give, give us a little bit of a summary as to what was, uh, what, what was the sequence going down into the bedrock and the circles that became sort of the focal point of the site.
3: Absolutely. In, during the historic period, the since the early 1800s, this lot and area had been occupied and used uh, fairly continuously. Um, up until the, the present. So there, there are some major things that happened at this, at this location, though, and probably the, uh, uh, one of the main ones was that uh, Fort Dallas, a U.S. Army Navy fort, was located at the, at the, in this block and then beyond a little bit as well, and that was utilized from about 1838 to 1842 and then reoccupied 1849 to, to the early 1860s. And that was Fort Dallas. And then also on the site uh, in the late 1800s, about uh, 1896 or so, the Royal Palm Hotel uh, was uh, built by a gentleman named Flagler who was building a railroad line for, down, along the east coast out to the Florida Keys so that the, uh, the wealthy in the northeast could take, the, take his train down to uh, Key West every night staying at one of these grand hotels and then mm-hmm. take a boat to, uh, to Miami to vacation for a couple of weeks and then work their way back up. So um, they, this block has been called the, uh, the birthplace of Miami, and, and it truly
2: is. It's incredibly, incredibly important. So it has a very rich historic history as well, uh, historic sequence, I should say, as well. And then uh, be, be, beneath the hotel building stages, what is there? Uh, beneath the well, the
3: archaeological uh, site itself. I mean, is there were and I'm certainly not an expert in this. And, and Robert Carr, the archaeologist, actually has written about this in a great book and actually discusses the uh, the history of the location as well at the mouth of the Miami River. But uh, uh-huh. in a book called uh, uh, Diggy Miami," it's a 2012 book. So listeners who really want to get the context, so they should read read his book. Um, but the, uh, uh, there were human remains found. It was likely, uh, it was an occupation site in, in the past about 2,000 years ago. Um, you know, this was uh, an ideal environmental setting at the, at the, you know, being at the mouth of the Miami River and at a, an environmental ecotone uh, sure. with, with fresh water. So it was definitely a uh, desirable location in prehistoric times as well as uh, during the historic period.
2: Okay, and so um, going into the prehistoric sequences, uh, they come down on these magnificent circles that are apparently carved into the limestone, correct?
3: Well, what we have are the, the remains of the post holes that would have right. made these circular enclosures. Right. And they range the holes are, you know, I think on average about three to four inches in diameter, and they form these large circles. Um, that are about 35 to 40 feet in diameter. Okay, there are there are nine that are uh, that were discovered within this
2: one block. So take us into the controversy and the source of disputes and who was funding it and, and, and the permitting process, because I think a lot of our listenership is not familiar with the type of permitting that's involved in these types of situations and how it is related both to federal, state, and in this case, municipal guidelines as to what has to be done and what doesn't necessarily have to be done. Why don't you take us through that uh, sequence a little bit?
3: Absolutely. Um, when the developer, MDM Development, uh, requested a building permit from the city of Miami in the, the late 1980s, um, this this site was a known site, so it wasn't a newly discovered site. In fact, this area at the mouth of the Miami River had been known for a long time as a sensitive site. There were a series of, of large mounds that were in the area, so it was known, um, and even archaeologically investigated, um, in the 1800s. Uh, And I think this this site or location was officially recorded during the the 1980s, and became kind of a part of the city of Miami uh, planning, or on the radar for for planning, so it was known that it was a very archaeologically and historically sensitive area. Uh, In this case, there were no federal or state laws that uh, really guided the process. It was strictly a municipal process. And in 2002, when the city actually came up with a a disturbance permit and disturbance plan for the developer to proceed, they specified that an archaeologist conduct investigations at this block. And so the developer hired uh, Mr. Carr to start the excavation uh, process. At that time. So the the archaeological work um, was largely completed uh, this year, early this year, before this kind of controversial hearing that led to the uh, the kind of, I guess, the the visibility of this site. So, you know, and this is something that was, I think, you know, misunderstood often in, you know, cultural resources are very emotional for for people on, on many sides. They bring out yeah. a lot of emotions in all of us for the for the community, for the you know, often uh, for descendant communities, sure. for you know, and for us as professionals as well who are concerned about the information of the past. Of course. So, you know, this was the the public, I think in here was expecting this to really be or it was set up as a battle essentially kind of between the developer and the the community as a battle for preservation. And that's the way it was really framed, at least in the, the public press, um, and the way that I think largely the the people of Miami viewed this. You know, but the while the argument was about preservation, the site had essentially been a hundred percent destroyed through through the excavations and through the archaeological work that was required for this for this process. So, you know, I think if your listeners think about you know an archaeological site as being you know, like a three-dimensional box filled with, with dirt. The by the time this hearing happened early this year, you know, essentially all of the dirt had been removed and what we were left with was the the bottom and the sides of this of this box with some post impressions in the in the bedrock underneath this. So while the debate was being framed as a debate about preserving this site, at least the archaeological portions of that site had had essentially already been destroyed. And when this hearing took place, what was actually before the commission was the developer's post-archaeological uh, mitigation plan or what the developer was going to, to do after the excavations to present the, the findings, the history. Um, you know, what, he, what was he going to do as a part of his development um, to deal with, I think, the, the educational aspects and the public aspects of this Site to communicate the importance of this site and and what was found, but um, so what the the board in Miami was actually asked to make a decision about was the post archaeological uh, mitigation plan because the archaeological work and the archaeological mitigation plan had essentially been fulfilled, and this is one of these unfortunate elements because this developer spent about three million dollars <laughs> doing the archaeological work on this project and excavated 100% of the archaeological site, which never, never gets happened in a a compliance investigation. And, you know, he was was largely vilified, but in a sense, the developer had done and has done more for the archaeology and history of downtown Miami than than anybody else has. Um, And I think, fortunately, we can talk about the outcomes of this, but the outcome was a very good outcome and i think that that most parties are, are very pleased with the way it it ended up but the process by which it got there was you know was confrontational and controversial and and kind of an ugly process and, and in my opinion an unnecessary process these types of compliance investigations the thousands of them take place uh every year throughout the united states and and you know, uh, only a very few of them actually really lead to these kind of controversial and confrontational uh, uh, showdowns, in a sense.
2: And uh, was this ongoing for years?
3: Well, the, the project has been ongoing for, for over a decade. And the archaeological work, like I said, had been started in, um, in the early 2000s. But it became visible to the community um, and to the city um, and, and to the world to a large extent really just over this last
2: last year. And we will be back in this very interesting and fascinating st- uh, discussion with uh, Dr. Chris Doerr in uh, the Miami Circle Project right after these words. Stay tuned.
0: Opinion. your voice counts call
3: toll-free 1-866-472-5787
0: 1-866-472-5787 voiceamerica.com
1: want to help make our world a better place but not sure where to start tune into better worldians radio with the creators of the social game on facebook called a better world Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age seven to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, (laughs) VoiceAmerica.com.
2: this is Joe Ryan, and we're back with a very interesting aspect and a very interesting segment of our program. The topic is the Miami Circle, which is one of those uh, potentially controversial archaeological projects that puts the interests of the developer against the potential interests of the preservation community. My guest is Dr. Chris door who was brought in as an expert witness to resolve some of these issues that pit the development concerns against the preservation and heritage uh, advocacy situations that often we encounter in these types of situations. Chris, why don't you tell us how you were brought in as an expert witness and what the primary motivations were that got you involved in this in the first place?
3: The I was brought in as an expert um, to work for the developer's, uh, I guess, side in this. And, and I got a call from the developer's attorney who was handling this, which is a, a law firm called Stearns Weaver. And I've been doing expert witness work for, I guess, for about 10 years, um, primarily with archaeological site damage and um, also with uh, environmental compliance. Um not as a as a full time venture, but uh, perhaps a job or two a year over that that period. So, mm. and as a consultant, I'm out there advertising to to attorneys for these services, and and the uh, the attorneys somehow found me and contacted me and and asked me. Uh, they explained what was going on a little bit and and asked me if I could come and give my professional opinion on the developer's uh, uh, post archaeological mitigation plan. That was going to, you know, be before the uh, the city of Miami.
2: But you are when you're saying post archaeological, I assume you mean post excavation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Po- post excavation. So yeah, then- I, I think we, we have these issues in many many sites, and and I just in general, before Chris gets into the details of this particular situation, it is often. Um, very difficult to explain to developing interests that once the actual excavation has been completed, then uh, in a sense, much of the real work has to go on because artifacts are taken out of the ground. And of course, for most developing interests, what happens here is they have license to actually go ahead and construct whatever development they have, be it a highway, be it a a housing development or some kind of a municipal building or a pipeline – um there, uh, the assumption is that now they have free reign to go ahead and do their construction. In most cases, that is what goes on. On the other hand, they are also bound to issue reports that will contain results of analyses, that will c- include public outreach components, so that there's an ed- educational element of this that gets imparted to the public, because after all, they uh, fund these types of operations. And the regulatory Agencies involved in this kind of uh, scrutiny will mandate a certain amount of effort and a certain type of effort that has to go in that direction. So, Chris, why don't you take us into the actual details of how that worked in your situation?
3: Well, that's exactly right, Joe. You know, and in this case as well, um, one of the problems was that, uh, you know, there was no, uh, they had run out of space to put the artifacts that were recovered from this uh, project. So, uh, I believe, uh, History Miami is an organization in Miami that, that has a history museum and a large repository, um, and had, uh, accessioned or taken some of the artifacts from the initial parts of this excavation, but actually had run out of room. So the, you know, we have a, I don't, uh, I don't know if you've talked about it on your show, but, uh. Listeners may be aware that there is a nationwide kind of curation crisis in in archaeology. Yeah, we've had a
2: curation program uh, complete, actually a series of programs on the curation issue itself. So, yeah, a lot of them are
3: familiar with that. Yeah, go ahead. So that actually was a a part of this particular project as well. And one of the things that in the developer's plan um, was to, you know, to... uh, uh, pay for additional space or whatever for the storage and curation of, of these artifacts. Um, but what the what the developer had originally proposed was essentially incorporating in the development of his building would be a, a kind of a history plaza. So it would be an outdoor area, um, kind of like an outdoor museum uh, that you would you would pass through and walk through in the ground floor of his building that would have a uh, exhibits about the history of, of Miami. Um, and including uh, one of these large 40-foot circles was actually going to be cut out of the bedrock and, and displayed um, in this as well. So it was, a, it was a major undertaking, in addition to, of course, funding the, the you know, the probably several years of analytical studies that uh, that are currently taking place in the, the publications and the, the curation of, of the artifacts. So that was the um, uh, some aspects of the original the original plan that was before the city.
2: So, enter Chris door I, I guess, you know, having drawn on some of my own experience in this kind of a situation... Uh, we, we have gotten involved in this as well here in the Northeast. Very often, if there's a certain amount of controversy, either the developer, well, the developer by and large, will call on somebody from the outside, assuming that there are no vested interests involved here, that there's no potential clash between folks who have obviously developmental interests, which would be the developer himself, and preservationists to uh, get sort of very involved in, in their own aspects and their own zeal to, to, to maintain and preserve, and sometimes they bring in an, an, an expert witness who is sufficiently detached from this project to actually go into sort of the legal and technical elements of this and to sort of mediate. Is, I, I'm guessing that that's why you were brought in.
3: I, I'm guessing that that's the case as well, and as far as I know that, that it was. You know, There, there are plenty of, of great archaeologists in, in Miami and in Florida, and I'm certainly not an expert on, on Florida archaeology. Um So the I was brought in um, because as, as we mentioned earlier, you know the, when you deal with heritage resources, they can be tremendously emotional and yes. everybody gets fired up. And that's right. I am, I'm not an expert in Miami archaeology, but I am an expert in, in you know archaeological site damage and in uh, heritage compliance uh, law. And so that was really why I was brought in. In this case you know this wasn't a court case at this point in time the this was simply a hearing before the city but strategically the attorneys were were anticipating that this may be litigated and using this hearing to actually lay the foundations for a for a law case you know the interesting thing is in in the United States um You know, we have very strong private land laws where in most of the world, heritage resources are are national, you know, they're patrimony, cultural patrimony for the the state or for the nation. And in the United States, they're not. And this, you know, came up with the original Miami Circle uh, on the south side of the river when it was discovered as an important site. And the way that that site was preserved was that the state of Florida actually had to come in and purchase that piece of property, I believe at $26 million. So in this case, again, while the community was really wanted this parcel to be preserved and was was advocating for preservation, the reality was that, that the community had no resources to purchase this property. Right. And the city of Miami could not, without a mechanism for somebody to come in and actually purchase it and preserve it, it was. It became what's what's termed a a taking. You know, the city doesn't have the authority to take, you know, or condemn private land from the owner without compensation, and that's right. just the way our system works in the United States. So, you know, without uh, without the resources, this this creates kind of this preservation standoff. You know, what the community was advocating for, you know, preserving this lot, but there was really no no mechanism other than kind of negotiating with the developer uh, right. on a compromise to actually try to, to you know, get what the community, community wanted. So what happened? Uh, what happened was that the city of Miami in the preservation hearing uh, rejected the mitigation plan that was proposed uh, by the developer and actually passed another resolution that said that the developer could Proceed with the development on this property, but couldn't in but in so doing couldn't damage any of the the uh, postholes or remains of the archaeology that were left in that lot. So that created kind of I think an uncomfortable situation. And I'm you know I'm not an attorney, but uh, it I, I believe from the developer side that was essentially kind of viewed as in essence a taking of that that property. From the developer and prohibiting him from developing it, so the yeah. the path was, I think, rapidly heading towards towards litigation in, in court from the developer's point of view. However, the the uh, recourse um, for at the uh, the preservation hearing was to go to the to, I believe the the full city council, and so they were appealing to the to the city. But before that actual formal appeal took place, there was a couple days of, of 12-hour uh, meetings, uh, and I believe they brought in a retired federal judge to, to mediate, and there was discussion between the city and the developer that actually led to a plan uh, that was a, was a really good plan. I think most sides agree that it was a, it ended up being a good plan where the developer gave considerably and did uh, redesign the building to accommodate what's going to be very exciting for downtown Miami. They're going to, as part of the development, they're going to leave the bedrock in place and cover some of the, the post holes and circles with a essentially a glass floor so people can look down. And they're going to provide a home for History Miami to operate an on-site museum. Um, some of the other historic period remains are going to be preserved, um, some of which in place and are going to be be viewable. Uh, Native American human remains are going to be reinterred and protected. Um, They're going to mark the original course of uh, the river channel. So it's actually going to be, the whole development now is much more geared around the history and prehistory of this site and going to give people a chance to actually look at that. And some of this site is going to be preserved for the the future. Um, But, you know, it, it was a compromise. And the the historic preservation community in Miami didn't get everything that they wanted, and the the developer didn't get everything they wanted. But given our private system uh, within the United States, it was it was actually, in my opinion, a very, a very good outcome that I think most so are, are pretty pleased
2: with. It's a preservation in place alternative, and and you know we've done the same thing here in New York at the African burial site. Um, Location here in, in in downtown New York, so I think these are models that a lot of metropolitan areas are starting to adopt, where yes you can 't preserve everything, but you can 't destroy everything and it it 's sort of uh, sort of a representative sampling of what the principal issues are here and the principal findings and you sort of maintain them and you make them visible and I think that 's a reasonable alternative and you 're saying that once this did get resolved, which I assume it is, then all of a sudden the uh, both sides, uh, as you said, they nobody got exactly what they wanted, but nobody lost everything either. So, how is that playing out right now?
3: I believe that uh, I believe essentially it is settled. Uh, I'm aware of one kind of ongoing lawsuit that has to do with the transparency of the arbitration um, setting, but that's not directly related to the to the archaeological outcome. So. You know, this is, uh, I believe it's resolved, and I believe the the development under this new negotiated plan is going forward. You know, and I think you said this at the, the outset of the show, and I'd like to reiterate it. You know, people, we call it preservation law in the United States, but the reality is that very few things actually get preserved. But what is mandated is a process by which you, you weigh the value of the archaeology and the, the history, and the, the heritage values, and you weigh those against the development values. And in this case, the you know this wasn't just a, a, a private developer trying to make money and do this development. It actually played a pretty important role uh, in the, the development of downtown Miami and solving some urban planning issues that the city had. Uh, and and traffic issues and pollution issues because nobody or very few people lived in downtown Miami and they commuted into the city center. And this developer uh, uh, stepped up to the challenge that the city had made about providing um, housing downtown to alleviate some of these urban planning problems that the city was having. So this developer stepped up to do this. So, you know, the there was a process to weigh those values, and I think a compromised outcome really shows that the values were considered, and there was a a compromise where you know everybody won something, but everybody lost a little bit as well. But it was a it was a
2: good compromise. Tell us what your particular involvement assisted in in resolving, because you came in as the expert witness or providing the expert testimony. How how did you enter into it and? Uh, how did that process involve and evolve in terms of your own participation?
3: The, it was actually a surprisingly fast uh, a job for me. I got a call about uh, a week before this, this hearing, and given my own schedule, I really only had a, a few days before the hearing to, to do any preparation. Um, so uh, my, I flew to Miami, and I crammed like uh, crazy and read as much as I could to learn as much as I could about – not only the archaeology that had happened there, but uh, more importantly, the process that had gone through and and where was the, you know, what was really all this about, which before the hearing was the developer's mitigation plan and reviewing all that I could in that time period, uh, formulated a professional opinion about did I believe that that, you know, was that mitigation plan that was before the commission, you know, was it adequate or was it not in my opinion it actually was a fairly good and, and certainly adequate mitigation plan for um, for what was proposed so I gave testimony at the, the hearing um, in Miami and after that hearing I worked a little bit with the developers on some other issues kind of behind the scenes but after that actually because it didn't go on to a formal appeal before the city or didn't go on to a legal proceeding, uh, my involvement was essentially done at that, that point in time, and the, I had no part, actually, in the, the arbitration that was done between the, the city
2: and the developer to, actually, to work out the, the plan that resulted. Now, one of the elements that you pointed up, which I found was a little bit odd, and, and I guess it does happen in places, mm-hmm. is that uh, the state, actually, I mean, if it was Bob Carr that was involved in all of this, the state is involved here in the actual excavation. Is that correct? The state was not involved. Um,
3: there are state laws regarding uh, human remains that, uh-huh. that were followed, and the state, uh, the state historic preservation office in in Florida, uh, the uh, I believe it was the the head archaeologist or, or one of the senior archaeologists uh, with the state of Florida did uh, weigh in in a letter and was monitoring the process, but. There was no direct involvement uh, by, by the state in this. This was um, Procedurally, this was uh, a city of Miami process. Okay, but I mean, who was doing the actual excavation? Was it a private consulting firm? It was, right, it was Mr. Carr's uh, consulting organization, which is a private nonprofit, I believe.
2: I see, okay. It was okay. working w- for MDM development. I, I, I wasn't clear on that. And in terms of of the process going forward, uh, I assume that there were some objectives on the part of Native American groups as well as local civic organizations that were very preservation-minded. The
3: Yes, and the city was, uh, by the time this hearing took place, the city was, I would say, they, and not just the preservation community, but actually a broader uh, the broader people of Miami had been you know, they had been reading about this in the newspaper and through media outlets and, mm-hmm. and were, were very kind of emotionally involved. I mean, this was the birthplace of Miami and the birthplace of sure. their, their city and a very important place. And so there were a large number of people who uh, gave uh, public comment at the uh, before the city in this, this hearing. That included people from the Native American community, but uh, a very wide spectrum of people. Uh, the community, including school children and educators and professionals, professional archaeologists, and um, a large, large, broad uh, segment of the city of Miami. But you know, an interesting thing about this, which I'd like to, I think, talk about for just a little bit, if I, if I may, Joe, is that, you know, what did the what did the community of Miami know about this site? And I think, in this case, there was a mix-up between kind of archaeological fact and archaeological interpretation, mm-hmm. you know, and the, to the professionals who may be listening to this, you know, I think when we have the opportunity to talk to the public or to talk to media about archaeological or scientific work that, that we're do- doing, we have to be very careful to separate what archaeological facts are from our interpretation of those facts. And I think in this case, the interpretation of the archaeologists involved um, became kind of got spun around and became fact in this case. So the city and the the public's understanding, what they thought was that there was a a synchronic village site, uh, a prehistoric village site that was all occupied at one point in time and was uh, consisted of large 35- to 40-foot roofed structures that Mm -hmm. were raised up on poles and connected by raised walkways throughout this site. And I think that's what they thought was going to be preserved, or that's what they thought what was there. And that was the interpretation of the archaeological remains. And I think that the interpretation of the archaeological record in this case is really... Uh, I mean, it's open to professional debate and uh, and ma- many different interpretations. Some of this came out during the the hearing and the the proceedings. But you know, and part of my argument when I was assessing the mitigation uh, uh-huh. was that we that the archaeology was done well enough and was documented well enough. The archaeological facts were there. So we can have both public and professional debates about the interpretation of this site into the future and because of that and because there are data to support different interpretations in my mind the archaeological work that was done was adequate mitigation for at least the data component of this site Um, you know the the post archaeological kind of uh, mitigation was what was you know we were discussing in this hearing the city was considering but the archaeological work i think was you know that the mdm development funded was done, was done well, and the archaeological data have been uh, documented very well, where we can have professional and public debates about what actually was there in, in the past. But I think there was a lot of confusion in the public you know, between this dimension of archaeological fact versus the archaeological interpretation of those, of those facts or the archaeological record.
2: And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up. I want to thank my very special guest and good friend, Chris Dorr, for participating in the program. And I just want to emphasize that um, this type of resolution is more frequent than it is not, and that very often the interests of developers and the uh, objectives of preservation can meet and hopefully they will meet more and more as we enter into this very, very scary world of sustainability where we have to really preserve and retain our resources and I think that appropriate meeting of the minds in the way that Chris discussed is a way that we're going to proceed going forward and let's look at the positive achievements as we move along this road. And I just want to invite everybody to participate and uh, encourage you to listen to our programs going forward. We'll have another special episode next week. And until then, good evening and stay well.
1: For tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.